Welcome everybody uh, to, this, to this event. It's a great pleasure for me to give you a short 15-minute overview of some thoughts related to the news a few days ago about roughly 1,500 people starting a caravan from Honduras uh, trying to cross Guatemala, uh, then Mexico, and trying to make it to the United States. They're coming from San Pedro Sula, one of the cities in Honduras, which has been plagued by extreme levels of violence over the last 20 years. And one of the things that this shows you is the extent to which violence can be utterly destructive to people's daily lives. Um, the kind of thing that probably many of you have been doing without even thinking about it, namely walking here on a Sunday, Saturday lunchtime, is something that would be utterly unthinkable in those societies. And so the question that I want to look at with you today is what makes some societies more violent than others. I want to start, I want to start with the question, oops. How much do violent societies differ in how violent they are? Just to give you an idea about how much variation there is across the contemporary world. I will do this using a very simple scale here, which I call the human society's homicide scale. It ranges from pacified societies with very low levels of homicide to very highly violent societies. The indicator that I will be using is called the homicide rate, and just so that you have an idea, this is simply counting the number of homicides and then dividing it by the population so that you get a standardized measure of how many homicides occur per population. It's usually expressed per 100,000 of the population. That's convenient because Cambridge has roughly 100,000 inhabitants. So you can always translate this into, this is the number of murder cases that would occur in Cambridge in a given society. I plot this on a scale that I plot this on a scale that has a particular feature, and I just need to explain this to you. It's always a little bit delayed. Uh, I, I display this on a scale that is called a logarithmic scale. So each time you go up one of these lines, you multiply the number of homicides by a factor of 10. So across this scale, you see differences by a factor of roughly 1 to 1,000. And that's important to understand. So you have huge differences in levels of violence across this scale. Let me just see what happens, right? So the first thing that I'm doing is to display the homicide rates across the world using the World Health Organization data for 198 countries in the world. In the middle, you can see the current global homicide rate, which is about six murder cases 
per 100,000 people per year, which translates into about 450,000 deaths per year, or since the beginning of the millennium, about almost 8 million people killed worldwide through homicide, making it globally a much more important source of violent death than, for instance, wars. It's probably useful to give you an idea of differences of where different countries are on this scale. So I've highlighted a few countries to give you a better idea of where these countries are. At the very bottom you see Singapore, which I will be coming back to, Switzerland, which is the country where I come from, then the United Kingdom, not at the very bottom, but relatively low, and then you go up until you get to countries like Mexico, Jamaica, and Honduras. Now it's important to bear in mind how much of a difference is reflected on this scale. The most violent societies that we currently know of in the world in terms of homicide are roughly 500 times more violent in respect of homicides than the most peaceful societies. And moreover, it's important to have an idea of how concentrated violence is. 10% of the world population live in countries where almost half of all homicides occur. On the other hand, about half of the global population lives in countries where only about 10% of all homicides occur. So the important message here is violence is very unequally distributed across the world. And we live in a part of the world that's relatively peaceful. I want to show this to you with a map. This is what the world looks like if we look at the world with each country being proportional to the number of homicides. And you can see that Latin America, which includes the 10 most violent countries on earth, is huge, Africa is huge, and Europe and Northern America are relatively small, especially Europe is very small. You almost can't see the United Kingdom, so I've, I've drawn a little plot uh, line around it. Now, one important thing to bear in mind, or one important contrast that I want to show you, is what the world looks like by scientific output. So here you see the world, what it looks like by academic output, and we still have the angle around the place where we currently are. Why is this important? Because it shows to you that the places where the problems are is not the places where the knowledge is. And so in violence research and in violence prevention research, we have a big problem in that we need to bring knowledge and to promote knowledge in the societies that are characterized by very high levels of violence. How do violent and peaceful societies differ? I just want to give you very briefly a few ideas about how they differ. I'm coming back now to my original scale, and I think one of the important things that you should understand is that along this scale, it's not just a matter of differences in the number of cases. There is also a change as you move up this scale, a change in the nature of homicides. If you go up the scale, homicide becomes something that's deeply intertwined with politics. It's something that's associated with power, with control, while at the lower end, homicide is much more reflected, associated with individual pathology. 
These are societies that are characterized by rule of law, high level of social integration, education, and self-control and trust in authorities. But at the other extreme of highly violent societies, homicide serves political goals. It's related to male control, power, profit, and reputation. Now this is just a little mistake. And I want to move over to my third and last part, namely how societies become more violent and more peaceful over time. And I want to show you a brief, give you a brief overview of a paper that I've been working on over summer while it was too hot to be outside, <laughs> and so I decided to spend some time in the university library, which is a beautiful place to be in when it's hot and uh, sunny outside. <laughs> now, I'm going back to my slide, my, my scale again, and I want to highlight two cases that we already mentioned, namely Singapore at the very bottom and Jamaica almost at the very top. And the question is, how did these societies get where they are? Now, I'm a historian by origin, so I'm always interested in what happens historically. And so I spent some time over summer collecting time series of homicide rates in these two societies. Let me first start with showing you what happened to Singapore over time. Well, much of this scale is actually, have actually been put together by a student of mine, uh, Wei Yong um, Tai, uh, who is uh, a very senior civil servant in Singapore. And you can see that Singapore was a relatively violent society for long periods of time, and then starting in the 1960s, homicide rates started to go down, and it's now one of the least violent societies. Let me contrast this to the development in Jamaica. Now, Jamaica was astonishingly similar until independence. In fact, at the time when Jamaica and Singapore became independent countries in 1960, they were so similar along so many dimensions. They had a similar GDP per capita, they had similar rates of literacy, they had this very similar justice system, and effectively, as you can see, their homicide rates were very similar. So what happened in these two societies that pulled them into different directions? Of course, I can't discuss all the factors. There is no such thing as a simple answer to this question, and I have limited time. So I will just focus on a few, um, on a few factors that have to do with internal politics. Not everything was about internal politics, but some of it was effectively questions of governance and, uh, and, and the rule of law. Singapore, as many of you may know, was founded by a charismatic politician, Lee Kuan Yew, and talking about Lee Kuan Yew is very adequate because he was a student of the law faculty of the University of Cambridge. Um, and one of the things that Lee Kuan Yew emphasized from the beginning was control of corruption, high investment in education and health, professional police, a meritocratic society that does not privilege certain groups of people, and a very low level of segregation through a housing policy that systematically avoided concentrations of poverty in Singapore. 
Now, Jamaica went, for various reasons, a very different way. Already in the 1940s and 50s, since Jamaica started to develop into very strong clientelistic policies, with different parties, the two major parties in Singapore, used violence to create, to create support groups within certain neighborhoods that would vote for these parties. And they used the police and private uh, groups to, to enforce order within the neighborhoods, especially in the poor neighborhoods. A politicized civil service to this day, where the people going into civil service are elected by politicians, a distrusted violent police, just to give you an idea, the number of people killed by the police in Singapore, uh, in Jamaica, is roughly 2,000 times higher than the number of police, of people killed by the police in Singapore. And persistent poverty. I want to wrap up, and I want to wrap up with one, you may not be able to see it well, but it's this basic idea that Lorenzetti wrote, you know, painted on the wall of the government in Siena in the 14th century. And he showed a good government, gov government and a bad government. And, and, and this idea of good and bad government is really core to what I was trying to say here. The most violent societies have about 500 to 1,000 times more homicides than the, least, than the least violent societies. In extremely violent societies, the rule of law breaks down and the state no longer provides protection which leads to the problem that others provide protection, which then leads to the problem that you have gangs and private violent entrepreneurs who step into the role of the state. If the state doesn't punish, somebody else will do the punishment. And that is very often the problem in these societies. And societies become violent or peaceful over time. So poor policy decisions do matter, and they can make a huge difference over an extended period of time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and um, I'm delighted to be here too, and actually I'm enjoying listening to my colleagues. Uh, the story I'm going to tell is quite similar, but the interesting similarity is that now I'm going to take you somewhere very local and closed, but actually the storyline is very similar. Um, I'm putting my own timer on so that I can relax about time. Uh, so the problem of prison violence uh, or the threat of violence and lack of safety seems to have made it uh, onto the storyline of The Archers on Radio 4. I don't know how many of you listen to The Archers, but uh, I don't, but I <laughs> heard it by accident. And for me, this is very interesting as it suggests that there's some awareness of the changing shape of our prisons. Uh, a reconfiguration of power is taking place, which really should be a matter of public concern. So I've worked in the field of prisons research for 30 years, almost without interruption. 
mainly trying to find a language and a conceptual scheme for understanding and then measuring what goes on in them. And in a long story, which I'm abbreviating for today's purposes, it turns out that just as in schools and perhaps in hospitals, the most important aspects of prison life and quality are interpersonal and moral. That is, they're about how people feel treated, about culture and values, or ethos. So there's such a thing as a moral climate in a prison, and I've learned with much help from staff and prisoners uh, and some creative methodologies how to measure this. So there were very important differences between prisons and their moral climates, and these differences seem to be quite systematically related to various outcomes, including violence. So one of the problems for the social scientist is getting our measurement of the basic concepts right. So again, for today's purposes, we might, under the general heading of violence, include suicide, I'll say why, uh, homicide, attempts at homicide, serious assaults, riots and disorder, extreme political and religious violence, which of course overlaps with some of the other categories, but can also include things like hostage taking and fire setting, and also perhaps some uh, incidents orchestrated outside of prison, but uh, organized from within or after prison. Uh, the category of extremist violence is particularly tricky. It's not always clear how incidents or events become understood as extremist. There are some very complex dynamics at play in high security prisons in particular, which prisoners sometimes use as a framework or mask for more ordinary violence deliberately in order to confuse and mislead staff. On the other hand, there are some legitimate concerns about the susceptibility of some prisoners to radicalizing ideologies in some prisons in particular, and there are certainly religious tensions in prison. So most but not all prison violence is carried out by prisoners, and most of the victims, but not all the victims, are prisoners. Some of you might have noticed there was an attempted strangulation of a prison officer that led to unconsciousness in Lindholm Prison recently, which led to action by the Prison Officers Association over safety and numbers. So uh, I learn most about the subjects I'm investigating, a bit like Manuel, but on a very different scale, by looking at variations between prisons, as well as changes over time. And there's plenty of scope here because we have many prisons, about 120, 14 of which are run by three private companies. There are new ones opening relatively frequently, and there's considerable variation in design and size, purpose, and moral quality. We have a relatively high imprisonment rate. We give relatively long sentences, and they've been getting longer over many years. There's also been a systematic attempt to make prisons cheaper, so that we can afford more of them uh, over the last decade. Uh, this has been aided by the introduction of private sector competition. So the overall price of imprisonment has been dropped to its current £38,900 per prisoner place. And you'll note that this is still more than it would cost to send someone to Eton or to Cambridge University. So one Home Secretary in a different era famously commented that prisons are an expensive way of making bad people worse. So was he right? Well, here's a prisoner writing in the prisoner newspaper Inside Time last month. He was convicted for his part in the Birmingham riot, which took place last December. It was quite a serious disturbance, causing lasting damage to the infrastructure of the prison. There was a little bit of reporting of this in the press and on social media. 
He received a six-year sentence for his part in the riot. The new offence of prison mutiny was invented following the strange ways and other prison riots in 1990. And he says, as you can see, I'm now in Ashworth Hospital, which is a special hospital, being treated fairly and humanely. The disturbance arose at Birmingham because I was not being given my antipsychotic medication on a regular basis. I don't know the exact events of the day because I was extremely mentally unwell. I'm a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic with a personality disorder. I know that when, I be when it began, I was really paranoid. I asked the mental health team for help, but was denied help over and over again. The current system is a disaster of all proportions. There are, there's no progressive routines in the prison system, barely any jobs, the wings are filthy, the staff are either corrupt or they don't seem to care about the prisoners. Violence is everywhere. You put all this together and you get riots. Since I came to Ashworth, I've been medicated correctly and regularly and treated like a person. Important words. And because of this, I've had no incidents whatsoever in the eight months since I've been here. I accept that prison staff have been cut by a greedy government, but the staff that have remained seem to have abandoned a positive work ethic. I believe they take out their hardships and unhappiness on prisoners. To put it simply, treat us like animals and we will respond like animals. This is interesting because uh, his analysis is actually pretty reasonable. There are obviously other causes of the causes, and he touches on something that shows up over and over again in our research. That individual care and the overall orientation towards the person can make the difference between life and death or peace and violence in prison. So let me show you some figures by way of illustration. Uh, this graph shows the rate of suicides and homicides in prisons in England and Wales since 1978. And what you'll see in the suicide figures most clearly, uh, these are the suicide figures, uh, is a quite steep growth. I can, that's a quite steep growth. Then quite a steep decline, and then another steep growth. A, a bit of a decline last year, but the figures are now on their way up again. And statisticians tend to use a three-year moving average figure as a way of smoothing out the data. There are fewer homicides, but if you see them closely, they actually follow a very similar pattern. So uh, the, one of the reasons why I include suicides when thinking about violence is because there is a statistically significant relationship between suicides and homicides. It's not a perfect match, but we can infer that prisons are either more or less safe. And so lack of safety is a common ingredient, whether we're looking at suicide or homicide. So what sort of figures are we talking about? Uh, if you just look at these top few up here, these are homicide rates or figures, and these are suicide figures. The rates are down here. So we've rarely had more than one or two homicides per year in our prisons, and historically speaking, the figure is usually none. This trend changed in 2013 with four, then three, then eight, which is the most we've ever had, three and then three. And my source is telling, telling me that uh, this figure is already higher than three this year. And you'll also see that suicides have occurred at about 80 per year, then fewer, and then the highest number to date, 122 in 2016, one year after the highest homicide figure. So we know much more about suicides than homicides. I've studied this subject many times. And over the years, uh, substantial and well-informed efforts have been made to reduce it. This figure is a eureka moment in my research life. And it shows, as I suspected, that three-year moving average suicide rates, 
by prison, each dot is a prison, are strongly correlated with measures of current distress in random samples of prisoners asked to complete surveys. So in other words, if you want to know how much suicide risk is in a prison, measure its current levels of distress among existing populations. Uh, we've used the general health question, uh, measure of anxiety and depression here, but we've used other measures too. And if that relationship works, then it means if you want to explain suicides in prison, you can do this by explaining variations in current levels of distress. Prisoners complete surveys on all aspects of their experience, including distress. We did this twice in 12 prisons and found a stable pattern in which aspects of what I call the moral climate, like relationships and respect, participation in offending behaviour programmes or personal development courses, some kind of meaningful activity, levels of safety and contact with the family explained most of the variation. And safety here was by far the most important variable, explaining 45% of the variation in levels of distress. So if safety is important, we need to know what explains variations in feelings of safety, and they in their turn are explained by the nature and quality of treatment by or relationships with staff. Levels of care for those thought to be at risk of suicide, support on entry into custody, the control of drugs in prison, and contact with the family. This is a sort of trust in the environment model of safety. Approachable staff who will answer questions and look out for individuals as well as police the prison well and provide reasonable facilities, including visits and contact, make a prison feel safe. This is actually a rule of law model of a prison. So it's important just to point out that our measure of the moral climate is not about niceness or laxity, but it's a very carefully balanced combination of relationships, humanity, professionalism, clarity and organisation, and policing and security. In other words, better prisons are well-ordered as well as interpersonally decent, and staff-prisoner relationships need to be right and not just good. That is, they have to have power flowing through them. Staff are in charge, but they use their power lightly, holding it in reserve most of the time, but persuading prisoners by their professional orientation and competence that they'll use it if they have to. This is a highly skilled art and something I've written about at length uh, in this book, for example. Prison officers are completely overlooked in official pronouncements about prison life and penal policy, and their role as creators of peace or the producers of a normative order is really quite tragically misunderstood. So when governments decide to run prisons with fewer staff, to pay them less, to increase turnover and shed expensive experience, they're creating disorder. We've seen a general shift from what we call presence to absence as prisons get cheaper, and we've seen an abdication of power by inexperienced and battle-weary staff, or it's land grab by prisoners as they see staff retreat from unmanageable wings and landings. We're seeing prisons turn from Singapore into Jamaica, if I take Manuel's storyline. So in two prisons here, with somewhat different histories and cultures, almost 50% of prisoners agree that this prison is run by prisoners rather than staff. This is not a good way to run a prison. It's not to say that more staff on its own is the answer, more experienced, professionally trained and confident staff working to an explicit model under strong leadership is more like the answer. 
So uh, to come back to something I mentioned earlier, since we're talking about extremes, I want to just touch on the rather sensitive topic of extremist violence. Um, we've recently developed a new dimension in our broader programme of research, which we call political charge, or prisoner anger and alienation. We think it's a good alternative to the concept of radicalisation, which is very loaded and imprecise. And we wanted to see whether politically charged, angry feelings were being generated to different degrees by different high security prison climates. These are the items in this dimension. Um, and the answer is they were. So three is a neutral score, and this shows three different prisons with three significantly different uh, scores on political charge. Where you see the yellow shading, that means that prison has reached the neutral score. Everybody else is politically charged or angry, but to different degrees. And these are very significant differences, and we're finding that there's a kind of threshold if you find a group of prisoners at this kind of level, which means very highly politically charged, it means there's a lot of anger and alienation in the air. The fact that there's differences between these prisons, which we can explain with our other dimensions, mean it's being produced by the prison environment. So political charge varied significantly by establishments, and these differences are explained by variations in each prison's moral climate. Specifically, Differences in levels of what we call intelligent trust, that is the prison's ability to place trust and distrust appropriately, humanity, bureaucratic legitimacy, which is about whether the requirements of your sentence, like doing required courses to reduce risk and gain parole, are clear and achievable, fairness, decency, and the quality of relationships in the prison. This is a sort of legitimacy plus explanation, or very similar to a failed states model. Ooh. <laughs> right, I am at the end. The end of the story is simply that um, here's a prison by wing with all these measures. E-wing, which doesn't have very much yellow on it, was the site of an incident of extremist violence, which occurred after we'd measured the prison. This happens quite a lot. We can go back to the data and say uh, this incident was more or less generated. Uh, the prisoners said emotionally rather than politically uh, by the climate in the wing. So that's, I'll better stop. Uh, this is also true of life outside of prison. And um, our explanation has very much to do with the perspective on personhood that's shared by prison staff in the relevant prison. But I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Okay, very good. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, I want to make something of an intervention along this larger question of extremes of violence. Um, my entry point to these discussions about violence is one that takes into account factors that are about politics and about history, but specifically as we might see them and read them through urban kinds of contexts. So uh, what I want to focus on in that larger context is this notion of inequality. Um, I think 
you'll recognize a lot of the themes that I bring up, uh, we've heard already so far. And that this question of inequality is one that is, of course, a very global question. It's a question that is of countries. It's a question that is of regions. And of course, it's a question that is very much of cities and of neighborhoods. Uh, and so we see in a lot of cities, especially in the global south, that this inequality often occurs in very egregious kinds of ways, spatially, um, where we see sites of uh, luxury or opulence, gated communities, right alongside communities that are of very extreme poverty, that lack the kinds of basic necessities that we would take for granted in this country. So this image is one that I want to start with. And I think it's an important image because really it's one that is quite universal in a lot of ways. This is an image that is, of course, of one particular city, but it could be of Johannesburg, Nairobi, Mexico City, or Jakarta. Um, it does happen to be of the city of Sao Paulo, Brazil, which is where I do most of my work. Um, but it speaks to this larger question of how do we get such significant inequality in cities um, that is both uh, material kinds of inequality, but also of issues of violence. So the reason that I, that I chose this particular image is not just because it's something that we could apply and think about in lots of different uh, contexts in the global south, but because it really does get to this point of politics and history. And I think it does that in a couple of very acute ways. The first is in the way that we might think about urbanization. Urbanization, of course, being the idea that there are patterns and processes in the ways that people settle in space, in cities. Um, lots of scholarship has, has traced that to ideas of industrialization and of development and when do people actually come to cities and how do they settle. But what I want to get to here is this larger component of thinking that says in the different processes of urbanization, how people settle, where they settle, and what the material and built context in which they come to live reveal particular kinds of relationships with politics and the state. So this image here, I think, is particularly important in that regard in that it suggests on your left-hand side, we see a community that is very much self-built. Um, some people might refer to this kind of space colloquially as a, as a slum. In scholarly work, we would talk about it in terms of informal urbanization. People settled, they built houses, they managed to connect the different things. Um, but what is evident here is that this pattern of settlement is one that took place in the relative absence of the state. They settled in spaces where the land is precarious. They settled in locations where there is little connection to water, sewerage, garbage, disposal, or electricity. And my point here really is that what matters most for the ways we think about violence is that they settled in spaces where there is very little connection to centralized forms of protection, what we would think about as public security or policing. This is an acute problem in the way that it matters historically. Um, it's also an acute problem because it leads to local kinds of effects around violence. In the absence of policing, in the absence of a, of a, of a notion of who you can trust or report to, when a problem occurs, what are the things that happen? What are the outflows of that kind of problem? So this particular community, I'm going to move forward as a kind of an example, is one that has a particular kind of, of lesson to speak to us about periods in which there were very strong gang um, implications that led to something very distinctive from that. 
The other thing I want to kind of point out in this image is what you'll see on the right-hand side. The right-hand side is something quite contemporary. It's an effort, a policy effort, to intervene in the space. And what I want to kind of take away here is the rather simplistic way in which this policy treats a very complex problem. So on the one hand, we see that there is something very deep and historical about how people have connected and solved problems around connectivity to water, electricity, rubbish disposal. And on the other hand, we get a policy which is about creating a bike path through the space. Right. So how are we managing to grapple with the larger problems of inequality that might exist in the policy that we actually do deploy, um, I think is a larger kind of problem. Now, where I want to go here is to suggest that this other image, which is of exactly the same city, suggests a very different type of relationship with politics in the state. Right. Uh, this kind of a building could never be built if it didn't have immediate connect connections to electricity, to water, to sewerage. Um, it wouldn't be built in this shape or form if it didn't have building regulations. And it certainly wouldn't be built in this form or shape if it didn't have international forms of investment in terms of, say, the Hilton Hotel <coughs> change. Right? These kinds of images in which we see this type of built environment alongside this previous type of built environment is a sort of mundane topography of a lot of cities in the global south today, where we see this kind of inequality in dramatic kinds of ways. That matters, of course, a great deal in terms of how we would think about policing these spaces. Right? So that the place I want to go from here is back to thinking very directly about how the, the historical and political conditions in which people settled in the cities continues to matter in terms of their relationship to the state and to police. This is an image that I, that I took with a cell phone when I held my hand out the, the side window of a police car that I was accompanying while doing research in Sao Paulo a number of years ago. And I intend this image to show something quite deliberate. And that is that a lot of the informally urbanized spaces of cities in the global south don't just lack policing, or they haven't historically had a strong relationship with the state. They are, in fact, the subject of policing. It are these spaces and the bodies and the people who live in these locations that are often understood as criminal kinds of populations. That matters a great deal because, of course, we're not just talking about some uh, bland body. We're talking about uh, black bodies. We're talking about people who have historic relationships with slavery or with other kinds of institutions of inequality that have left one circumstance and moved to a city in order to pursue a better quality of life. So I think what really matters here, then, is the way that we would think about <coughs> that relationship between the absence of the state historically in these places and what people do to solve problems of violence over time. This particular circumstance, and, and it's echoed in a lot of other places, and it came out in Manuel's talk, is about what comes to occur if the state is not present to solve problems or to punish. And we see in a lot of these, especially informally urbanized spaces, that other forms of sociality and organization start to emerge, sometimes as violent actors, but increasingly almost as though in a kind of a de developmental process as responses to violence, to egregious forms of violence. Um, and th that matters because what we see is that when we do have incidents of violence in a particular place like this, we know that people don't usually call the police to solve their problems mostly because the kinds of experiences they've had with police are these things that, one, the police may never come, 
Two, if they do come, are they more or less likely to actually extort you to try to get something done? And three, if they did show up, would they actually take your case seriously, or would they just shrug and kind of look the other way? This process, of course, has a very pedagogical function in which people come to learn very deliberately and in very subjective kinds of ways that policing is not for them. That matters because when violence does occur, they seek other alternatives, not just in terms of forms of organization and sociality, but also in terms of who they would go to when there is a form of violence that occurs. Who do they seek out to solve those problems? Right? Um, if we think about that in different ways, it, it means a great deal in how we would think about or, uh, or theorize ideas of legitimacy. Who do people make legitimate by deciding how they would seek out solutions to problems of violence? So we have lots of different terminologies to think about that. Community patrols, paramilitaries, drug trafficking groups, organized crime, and we have lots of different arguments about what these things might mean. Are they entrepreneurial and they seek money? Are they protection rackets and they are actually protecting? Are they security organizations that are trading money for security? Or increasingly, there's a discussion of how do these organizations govern in different kinds of ways. That is, enforce rules and patterns of enforcement in space that come to actually reflect a pattern of, of rule. Um, that matters because we get a lot of these shades of pacified societies, though they may exist in different kinds of terms. So I want to think about this now in a very, in a very direct kind of way. Um, through a particular kind of case, in fact. So this here is uh, an image of the city of Rio de Janeiro on Google Maps. So Rio de Janeiro is famous for a number of different reasons. It's a marvelous city with beautiful beaches, um, as a place of, of very egregious inequality, and of course it's recently the, the host of the, of the last Olympics, which means a lot politically. But Rio is also this place that has a kind of imaginary of violence and of who is violent and of the spaces of violence that might matter. And I want to dig into that just a little bit here. So if we look at particular kinds of cases of this inequality alongside other kinds of spaces, we see interesting kinds of things. So see, these are two different neighborhoods. On the one hand, on your right, you can see the pattern of settlement is one of of quite luxurious types of spaces. This real estate here is some of the most wealthy in Latin America, and it exists directly alongside what we would call a favela, or colloquially, a slum. A very different pattern of ad hoc urbanization along one which is very much luxurious and speaks to a different form of sociality and a relationship with the state. So there's a couple of things going on here. If we look closer at how these spaces exist, this is, of course, the wealthier space. It's one of barbed wires, of walls, of green space and trees, in fact, but of fortifications. And as we move up the hill, uh, this here actually is the entrance to the International American School, which is one of the most elite schools in Rio. As we move up the hill, we enter a very different kind of space, one that speaks much more to this pattern of informal urbanization and different kinds of solutions over time. So you start to see a very different kind of topography emerge in this space, quite abruptly, in fact. Right? So moving up the hill, we see that there's a density here. There's an ad hoc nature to the way things have happened. 
And if we are to reflect on that idea that people settled here, that they built over time, that they invested in the bricks piece by piece over time in order to build these houses, to rent them out eventually to other kinds of people, there's a historical process at play here that's very distinctive. Now, I want to do something here that matters a great deal. Google Street View is a, is a problematic but fascinating medium to think about these kinds of questions. Precisely because, if you look closely at it, what, what it has done is it has cataloged spatial change over time. So this is December 2016, um, not so, it's fairly, fairly close to the time when the Olympics took place. And you can see there's, it's a clean space. You've got very clear rubbish disposal that is centralized. The orange dumpsters are provided by the city. If we go back to what it looked like before Rio got the Olympics, this is what it looks like. So we have one dumpster which is overflowing. We have what seems like a very different attention to public service, right? Or to the disposal of these kinds of goods. So could people have an idea that they, that they could count on the state? How does that revealed in a context like this? Now if we move up again, I'm gonna move forward to 2016. We're following, actually, a city dump truck up the hill, um, and it's taking us to a particular location. This space um, is also interesting because around 2012, 2011, 2012, after the Olympics were announced in Rio, the government decided that it would create a special police force to intervene in the spaces controlled by drug trafficking groups. Drug trafficking groups in Rio de Janeiro and in other cities around the world are, of course, problematic and they gap capture people's attention. But at the same time, in some very difficult and slippery kinds of ways, they've also been responsible for controlling violence. And that matters a great deal because it, it implies a great, um, a, a, an important significance to how people themselves, citizens, have sought out solutions for what they have facing them as problems in their life. So at this period of time, this, this favela comes to be policed by this alternative police force. And we see all sorts of efforts to create a new kind of legitimacy between citizens and the state so that citizens would trust the police enough that they would seek them out in a case of violence, which is a very sharp distinction from what existed previously. And I want to show you a little bit about what that might mean. So we go back in time to July 2011, to a very dis distinctive kind of spatial moment. So on the right-hand side, it's a little difficult for you to see here maybe, there's a roadblock. Oops, I'm gonna back up there. Part of the problem with Google Street View is that it tends to switch back and forth arbitrarily between years when it can't find a space. So there's a roadblock on the right-hand side. There's a man over here who's trying to flag down the Google Street View car, saying there's something you need to stop, right? You can't, you can't proceed any further. You're entering, essentially, a different kind of space. If we seek out a different view of this, That roadblock is still in place. But we have armed sentries around, right, who are responsible for deciding 
what can enter and what cannot enter this space, right? This is a very distinctive image that we would see often when we talk about Rio de Janeiro. The young black man, gun-toting, drug trafficker, who is there somehow to wreak havoc on the city. But if we think about the historical circumstances that produced this kind of organization, it's a much more complex picture that we receive, right? It's not just of a young black man who is problematic and is a drug dealer, but it's of somebody actually who is enforcing a set of norms and of protecting a community. Protecting it from what, from what is a different kind of a question, whether it's protecting it from police, protecting it from other drug trafficking groups or something else. But this, this moment in which this was all happening was important because in fact, we don't have images of the current moment, but immediately after Rio de Janeiro finished with the Olympics, this new police organization receded from all of these favelas. And it's removed itself. And so what we've started to see again is a reemergence of these other groups back into this space and regaining the form of legitimacy that they used to have. So my point here really is that this idea of violence is deeply complicated when we think about the politics of inequality and of how that matters. This story basically becomes one of what did the Olympics make happen because of a global kind of vision and what happened after as a result. And the implications, of course, of this are that people are even less likely now to trust the state to solve the problems since they've seen it come fleetingly for the Olympics and then leave again. So I'd like to just leave it at that as a poem. Great. Uh, thank you very much for coming, and thank you, Manuel, for the invitation. Uh, three tough acts to follow. I will try my best. So I'm going to talk to you about violent places, what makes some places more violent than others, and asking questions like, what do we know and what can we do? I've got three main points. So if you fall asleep after the first slide, you know what I'm going to say. The three points are, violence clusters predictably in space and time, but there are gaps in our knowledge. The second is that social processes relate to where violence occurs. And the third is that violence is preventable. So what do I mean by violence and place? So for the purpose of my presentation, I'm talking about public acts of violence, street violence, assaults, that sort of thing, homicides. And in terms of place, well, you've seen kind of us go from societies to, to prisons to neighborhoods. And in, kind of in, in keeping with Graham's presentation, I'm talking about small spaces, small areas. Uh, and I'm basing a lot of this on kind of maps. So if you don't like maps, I'm really sorry. There's loads of maps. Um, but, um, we're talking about kind of quite small areas and, and then how we understand where these things occur. OK, so violence clusters in time and space. So I didn't know this. You might have known this already. Uh, the, the Friday before Christmas has got a nickname, Black Eye Friday. Um, I'm not sure whether Raymond Brown, who wrote this article, made it up or we heard it somewhere else, but I quite like, quite like the name of it. Um, so that Cambridge, Cambridge Alive ran this piece a couple of years ago, uh, just before Christmas. Uh, there's 24 streets in the city with the worst record for thuggery and assaults and so forth. 
and they produced this map. Now, this is probably the worst map I'm going to show you because um, you can't really see a great deal on it. But what you can see uh, is, a, like a, is a kind of clustering in space of where the crimes occurred, where the violence occurred. And if you're interested, because you're going to be out in the city in a minute, St Andrews Street, Corn Exchange Street, Sydney Street, Downing Street, Parkside are the top five. So, um, but, you know, so try and avoid those, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but, but, if you can. But what is interesting, even with a map as bad as this, you can see some kind of clustering in, in, in space of where kind of the most violence occurs. But we don't have to take their word for it. You can look at this yourself. You can do it now, but please wait until after I finish speaking. Um, this is a, a police.uk map. You can type in your postcode, and it will throw up kind of all this information about where violence occurs or where crime, all kinds of different crimes occurs. Um, and you can start, and you click on the dot, and it takes you to, and zooms you in and shows you where actual incidents have been reported. And lots of the data I'm going to talk about, you know, uses this, this kind of information. The good news is, by the way, if you're a homeowner in Cambridge, the violence is quite low. Uh, so your, your house prices are safe, at least for the time being. Now, I'm going to show you this next map. This is not, so this is not really about the map, other than to say, if you wanted to show where things are happening, a heat map like this is a really bad idea. It just looks like a child's watercolour painting instead. Um, <laughs> So the, the, I'm showing you this for a different reason. So buried in this report, which you're never, ever going to read, because this is a really niche bit of uh, police nerdery, um, uh, it's interesting to note that despite the closure of several main premises in recent months, the hotspot patterns in the town centre have remained largely unchanged from historic trends. Um, well, what's really interesting is that in, in spite of closing what they think are one of the main causes of this, in this case, alcohol-related crime, um, the, where the crimes occur is still pretty stable. And that's interesting because it suggests that there's something else going on there. Um, actually, we'll see this kind of stability over time with violence as well. Um, there is stability over time in terms of where, where violence takes place, sometimes decades. Um, and what's really interesting about this is it tells us there could be something about places that make them more or less conducive to violence and crime. Okay. So I'm hammering this point home, <laughs> but to introduce a different dimension here, we're going to talk about introduce the time dimension as well. So on the screen you have um, two maps of Birmingham, and this is all the assault data from the police for the whole of 2015, so thousands of incidents, and we've got four hours either side of midnight. Um, and you don't need to have studied crime and justice statistics in any kind of form to understand that something is going on here. There's a bit of a difference in the maps before and after midnight. I'm guessing everyone goes home and turns into pumpkins or something. I'm not sure what happens at midnight. Um, but this is actually quite useful because although the indiv individual acts of violence may be quite random, who's attacked by whom, um, when and where they occur is quite predictable. Um, and if you were a police officer, if you were the chief of police, my guess is you'd have more police out before midnight than after midnight, as, as an example. And just to show you that this, this kind of clustering in time and space is not something unique to sunny Birmingham, um, um, this is a map, which you, yeah, you have to read good eyes to, to actually read it. Um, this is a map from Bogota in Colombia, and this is a, a, a piece of work. And what the researchers have done here, they've divided the city streets up into 50-meter segments, so street segments, and they've taken all the violence data, and they've then shown where the, the hottest streets are. And this is quite helpful, because if you're trying to do something and you're a police officer, you need to know where to go. The child's watercolour painting isn't that useful. We can't go and stand near sunset orange blurry bit for a bit. But with something like this, you can actually go and stand quite precisely in a place and police it. But what does all this mean? So if we can predict where violence and, and crime more generally is predict, um, in terms of when and where we see it, it means we can act to prevent it. 
And what's really interesting, and I've alluded to this a bit already, is that the idea that places may have their own trajectories of violence, even when the people there are different. So people can come and go, but there is stability about where things are happening. But that means we can also implement policies on places. But our knowledge is incomplete. So pretty much everything I've showed you so far uses police data. But what we know, and other people have alluded to as well, is that the police don't actually record all the crimes that are reported to them. That shouldn't come as a surprise, perhaps. Um, but, <laughs> um, but actually, if you combine the police data with other sources of data, you get a much more complete picture. So if you combine it with ambulance calls for service, emergency department data, you get a much more complete picture of when and where violence in occurs. Okay, so the second point I'm going to make is about social processes relating to violence. So another map, I'm sorry, coming up. So this is a map of Chicago, and I'm going to talk to you about two different things. So the stars, if you're at the back, they're just the blurry blobs, the kind of black blobs. Um, let me show you yeah, these things up here. Um, the stars represent areas that have high homicide typology, the kind of high rates of homicide. And the shading areas, I'm going to talk about the shading in this, so they have light and dark shading. They represent different levels of what the researchers in this study call collective efficacy, which is essentially trust in other people and a willingness to intervene on behalf of others. And you don't need to be a professor of spatial statistics to see there's some kind of relationship between where the homicides are, where the highest rates of homicides are, and um, trust and cohesion. So basically, nearly all the, the high, high areas of homicide are in areas where trust and cohesion is low. Um, and again, this is really interesting, and Alison uh, alluded to this. There are things that we perceive around us. We can't actually see, but we can measure them through social scientific methods. And we can relate these things in terms of perceptions of safety and, uh, and trust and relate these things to things like homicide, which really matter to us. And this is another map. This is, again, this is not about the map. Anyone know where this is, quickly? It's near Cambridge. Yeah, okay, you know. Peterborough, okay. <laughs> so, um, so this is it's not about, this is a, a map from a study that a, a researchers at the Institute of Criminology has done. But again, it's not about the map, it's about another finding. So in, in, in this book, uh, this, this, they had this statement to say, collective efficacy was a considerably stronger predictor of where people commit crimes than where offenders live. There's a long tradition of research basically saying that offenders are really lazy. They won't go and commit crimes very far from where they live. Um, and actually, what this study, the study team have done and looked at is where people's uh, is, they actually found that this kind of trust and cohesion was more important for the selection of where people go and commit crimes than where they live. So they actually looked at this and tried to test out this idea, which I thought was which is really interesting and also really informative. Um, I'm going to finish my last kind of few minutes uh, talking about kind of preventing violence um, and how and where we act, how we react matters. So um, the question I asked on the board is, what can we do? Well, there are different things we can do or we're trying to do to try and prevent violence. Um, one, exa one example is designing out crime. Um, you may think, well, how can you design out violence? Um, one example is if you're thinking about large public order events. I hear there's a march on today somewhere in London. Um, there's a lot of thought that goes into um, how crowds flow in places. Uh, there's a lot of time spent thinking about this in the, in the design of stadia as well. Public, public, kind of public order policing, a lot of thought goes into, well, hang on, how do people flow around this physical environment? There is that kind of idea that you can build things that architecture can really matter for where, when and where crimes occur, and particularly violence. The second, I'll put it as like the, the symbol for this is kind of like the, the, the kind of monkey covering its eyes, because at the moment, Predictions and algorithms are kind of all the rage. There's a lot of effort going into um, trying to use, use information available to predict where the crimes are going to happen next. 
Um, and although at the moment it's, it's still very early on and it's in the evidence base, it's an area of work that's really interesting and holds lots of promise. Um, and it's one that's going to continue developing, I think, over time. And actually, I think, will end up being quite, quite useful. Another area, um, another way of intervening or talking about intervention is what's called public health. So on Twitter, on the news at the moment, there's lots of discussions about public health approaches to violence prevention. Public health approaches is a very broad umbrella term. Um, one, one example of it is treating violence as a disease or like an epidemic. And you try and interrupt and prevent the spread uh, through intervening in particular ways. Um, the other extreme of this is um, for kind of harm, so-called harm reduction or harm reduction approaches. A good example of this is in Cardiff in South Wales. Um, anyone from Cardiff here? Anyone from South Wales? No, okay. I'm not going to insult them. I'm just going to just out of curiosity. <laughs> uh, um, so they had a really big problem with violence uh, um, and street violence. And a, a, group, a group of medics and local politicians and researchers from uh, Cardiff University set about trying to prevent the, and reduce the harms. And it ranged from things like pedestrianisation of, of, of city centres to prevent people kind of funneling into each other, but it also went down to the level of detail of changing the composition of a pint glass so that when it was used as a weapon, not if, when it was used as a weapon, it would shatter and not shard. And so it did two things. It reduced facial injuries amongst those who were being victimised. It also reduced hand injuries amongst the assailants because they were clenching the glass and slicing their hands open. <laughs> so um, the final example is policing, good old-fashioned policing. The, the shorthand is cops on the dots. You find where the hotspots are, you put a police officer there, and that is, you know, there's evidence, good evidence showing that that can help reduce and prevent and rather than just displace crime. Um, but the more effective application of this is through actually working with the local community to problem solve with them about where, uh, what's going on that may be driving uh, crime uh, and violence in that location. So I'll finish up a little bit ahead of time. I've probably been talking really fast, sorry. Uh, to conclude, uh, violence is predictable in terms of when and where it occurs. We can relate social processes to violence to help understand the when and the where. Uh, violence and crime are not inevitable and can be prevented. And places, as well as people, can be changed to reduce violence and its harms. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Um, okay, so now for the questions and answers. Uh, thank you so much for your questions. Uh, the first question is um, that we're going to take is, could prisons act as test grounds for policy ideas? As test grounds? For policy ideas. And it's open to the whole panel, so whoever wants to <laughs> respond. Uh, I'm assuming that this means test grounds for the reduction of violence. In some ways, prisons are natural experimental settings that I, I refer to them as moral laboratories. Uh, this isn't how most people would think about prisons. But they are natural experimental environments. And we've been carrying out some natural experiments by privatizing prisons. Uh, that was introduced as a so-called experiment. And had it been really introduced as an experiment, uh, people would have been more interested in the results of all our various evaluations, which were tests of different forms of order and their relationship with lots of different outcomes. So I guess the answer to the question is yes, but it's not often the case, even though various experiments in forms of order and their relationship to outcomes are taking place all the time. 
Um, our second question is, uh, we tend to judge violence in negative terms, but are there situations in which, in which violence is justified? For example, the black civil rights movement in the USA um, and other such social movements. This might be for the end of the panel. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very important thing to really think seriously about. Um, and one of the major departure points from that is, is whether, whether we can hold the state as an idea and set of practices the same for everywhere in the world. Um, obviously, the state in this country has a very deep historical relationship with the development of institutions and with the ways people have been able to trust the state. And yet at the same time, there are many populations here who do not trust the state in the same way. Um, that is egregiously different in a lot of other countries around the world. Um, I think what I talked about is very much along those kinds of lines. Um, and people have de facto started to use violence to make their lives better in other circumstances. It is a big question whether we ethically believe that that is something that we should follow, but, um, but it is a bigger question actually that falls closer to home if we think about how the legitimation of some groups like this matters. So Northern Ireland, they've taken some of these considerations into account. So I think it is a, a very big question that speaks a lot about what investments we have normatively in the state as a solution. I just wanted to add one, one thought to what uh, was just said. The question of whether violence is legitimate or justifiable, you can very often observe by just looking at the kind of words that you use. When you think that violence is a bad thing, you say violence. If you think that it's a good thing, you say use of force. If you think that it's a bad thing against children, you say child maltreatment. If you think that it's a good thing, you say chastis chastisement. Mm -hmm. so, so there is linguistic differences that show whether people think under certain circumstances that violence is actually a good thing. But of course, it's in the eye of the beholder very often whether they do think that this is a good thing or not. Among young people, we've done a study in, in Switzerland where we ask young people, for instance, how many of them think that using violence for political goals is justifiable. And it's quite astonishing. Switzerland is a relatively peaceful country, but about 25% of young people say, yes, we think that it's right sometimes to support violent groups to commit violent acts. It's interesting that a number of different things play into this. Victimization through parental violence when they were children has an effect on whether they, as adolescents, think that violence, political violence, is justified. And again, one of the factors that play an important role is whether they come from what we call fragile states. So coming from a fragile state, but at the same time being male and having been brought up in a more violent family environment comes together and makes people more likely to believe that violence can be justified. Um, this is quite a broad question. Uh, so essentially looking at the factors that make societies go from more violent to more peaceful. Um, and how do you think education, uh, the lack of free speech, civil society, community capital, good governance affects this kind of process? And what are the policy implications of that? So this is, I think, for everyone. Right. So everyone. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. uh, yeah, sufficiently broad question. Um, I think I think one of the big challenges here is that there is a great deal of um, well, there are in fact the map that Manuel showed about where knowledge is produced in the world matters a great deal, uh, and the assumptions that we get and the affirmations that we get from research that is undertaken in the United States or the UK or in, um, in locations that are substantively different than other parts of the world often suggest that it's about social disorder or breakdown or lack of cohesion in communities or other kinds of problems. When in actual fact, what, we, what I've kind of spoken to and I think we see in other kinds of places is that there is a lot of, there is a lot of sociality that is interdependent and that matters a great deal in other kinds of locations. Um, and that people themselves have taken it upon themselves to solve a lot of problems when there weren't other methods for doing that. Um, and so I think it is, it is quite wrong to take some of the assumptions from the research of other places without critically addressing whether or not they hold in any significant kind of way for the other kinds of locations. So it's a huge question, um, and you could take it many different places. But yeah. I'll, I'll add something very minor, which is uh, not minor in another way, which is that... Um, one of my PhD students has been teaching philosophy to prisoners, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, her course is based on philosophy for children, and there's now a bit of a movement to teach philosophy in prisons, and it has a profound effect on violence. Uh, be, it's linked to the education question that um, prisoners become really interested in the politics of their own lives, and it changes their whole understanding of the world that they're in. So in some ways, taking philosophy into uh, the places that you've shown and just raising kind of awareness and understanding turns the day-to-day -day problems into political problems, which actually generates a certain amount of agency. Um, so we also know that um, punitiveness varies by levels of education. Mm. So I think we can, we can draw some general lessons about the value of education in peace building. I, I would like to link this question to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Because in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, for the first time in human history, the United Nations say, well, we should try to reduce violence. They say for some types of violence, we should try to eliminate them in the next 15 years, which is not going to happen. But I think we should try. Now, one of the reasons why I showed you these historical maps is that what they show is that this can be done. And we can learn from the societies that have been successful. That doesn't mean that we have to adopt the Singaporean model of governance, but it means that we should look closer in what has been happening in some of these societies. But it, the, I think one of the tricky things is to talk about this in high-flying terms like legitimacy, rule of law, inequality, and so on. And at the same time, and I think we've seen this with Graham, think about the nitty-gritty of what happens in people's daily lives. And let me just give you one example that is currently close to my heart in, in, in my own research that I'm doing on violence against pregnant women in different places in the world. One of the very basic things that can be done, for example, is train nurses to ask screening questions when mother, pregnant women come to health services and better understand whether they need specific help. That's something relatively easy to be too technically. It just requires training 
and the relative the support systems that are in place. So we need to bridge the gap between thinking about this in very concrete terms, what should be done in terms of training, education of the specialists, of the professionals, but also at the same time think about this as the wider structures that support, for instance, the rule of law in a society. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, how am I going to think about this? So, one of the things that um, struck me about my presentation following Graham's was that a lot of the research that I talked about it has, as Manuel pointed out, has come from countries, you know, that different countries to where lots of violence is taking place. And what we're starting to see is when we're testing out ideas in the countries where violence is really high, we're actually not getting the same kind of consistency in, in the results. And that's something that's really important to understand when you're thinking about transferring policies from place to place. Um, in relation to how kind of the question was, of, you know, how, how, what's the role of education, for, for example, and that sort of thing, I guess the question I have for the audience, to mull over, don't all shout out at once, is if you could put your policy kind of gamble on one intervention, where would, what would you do? Um, and believe me, people have thought about this for a long time, so I'm really not expecting an answer. But something to mull over as, you, as you're walking around and thinking about it afterwards. If you could put your money somewhere, where would you put it? Um, and that's something to, to, to mull over, because people are thinking about these kind of things all the time. Another question for everyone. Um, how do you explain spikes of violence in relatively peaceful societies? Um, so whether that's uh, in a prison or in a community, neighborhood, or in, in countries. So the example that is given here is the 2011 riots in the UK. <laughs> so relatively peaceful societies and areas, prisons, mm. and why do these things happen? Mm -hmm. <coughs> I'm not an expert on the riots in particular, but my own understanding, we might be a relatively peaceful country, but this is very differentiated mm. by population. And so for the population who were involved in the riots, their experience, their day-to-day -day lives are not relatively peaceful and they feel very uh, discriminated against, put upon, unfairly treated by the police. So I think what we saw during the riots was a kind of eruption among a very specific demographic and um, that means a bit as we've all been saying that it's we have to look within these peaceful societies uh, to find areas where uh, that isn't the general trend and there are uh, exceptions isn't the right word but different dynamics at play mm. I think uh, the there are different types of spikes, but I think these public order spikes are really quite, quite interesting for a criminologist. And I, I, I think I would just like to throw a few ideas into the room. They're linked to an, a number of <coughs> incidents, but in, 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 I, I was asked to, to give some expert advice on one incident this, that happened this summer in, in Zurich, where after a person was stabbed in public space and the police came in, and for some reason, that was on a Friday night, so police came in, the ambulance came in, and a group of people, it was after a football match, um, and fans from one of the football teams started throwing stones at the ambulance. Mm. And it was thousands of people, it was one of these hot summer nights, and all of a sudden, more and more people came in. And so you get these groups, so there is a number of things, I think, important in, in this case, and I think also in respect of the riots. Mm. Uh, I think it was Alex who mentioned the 
public health model of violence. And one of the things that is really interesting about violence is that it has this short-term contagion effect. Once, some, once violence happens, especially young men are pulled into it. They, they kind of like imitate the behavior of others. Mm -hmm. And so it has this very short-term escalating process where people just engage, not everybody, usually not women, but men, young men do this. And then comes the element of alcohol consumption on a Friday night, that comes the element of the group cohesion already existing through the fans of the football team, and then there comes into play unsensitive policing. The police came in with riot gear, they demonstrated that they are kind of like fighting some others, they started using tear gas, and that led to a polarization where possibly more sensitive policing could have de-escalated the situation. So there is a number of factors coming into play where these things run out of control at a short, within a short period of time. Thank you. Um, one thing that spikes in, in crime statistics always make me think about is the social construction of those statistics, the, where they come from and how they've been created. Um, and one thing, looking at kind of police data on hate crime, uh, hate, you know, uh, hate crimes that have been classified as because someone has a particular characteristic, um, we saw that um, Leafy Surrey ended up with a, a level, a, a rate uh, of hate crime that was many times that of London in one month, and we couldn't work out why. And um, when we actually asked, we, it's because it's an annual accounting exercise. And as long as the annual numbers were in line with the previous years, they could put them in any month they wanted to. So for one month of the year, it looked like there was a, like hundreds and hundreds of these offences. And actually, they'd been spread out across the whole year. That was one, one observation about kind of spikes in violence. Um, on the public order policing point, uh, following up what Manuel, Manuel said, um, there's interesting studies that have been done looking at if you, ha what happens if you militarise the police, if you increasingly militarise them. Um, and, you, and there is evidence showing that, that the police, if you militarise the police, it doesn't actually improve officer safety. It, makes, it can have no effect or it make things worse. It has no effect on violence. It doesn't actually deter violence. It may deter minor crimes. The question is in terms of the trust and cohesion with the police and the institution, is it really worth it? And that's the question that is being asked at the moment. Thank you so much, uh, the panelists and everyone else for attending and for giving us your time on a Saturday, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you.